All right, so this morning as we look at our next uh, section here in 1 Peter, uh, as I said, we're continuing the topic of sanctified uh, sojourning and submission. So as we walk through this world as believers surrounded by unbelievers, as we walk through this world as citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, we understand that we are to submit in various areas. And so as we started out in chapter 2, we saw that our behavior needed to be excellent before the Gentiles, so that as we are dwelling with people who are not the people of God, uh, meaning unbelievers, uh, those who are saved in Christ are the children of God, uh, that we have to live in such a way that demonstrates that the gospel has transformed our lives, that we are walking testimonies, if you will, of the transforming power of the gospel. And the Gentile word sees that, and many of them, uh, when they come to Christ, will remember the lives of those that they formerly mocked, they formerly ridiculed, and that will bring glory to God in the day of their visitation. Then we saw uh, that we were to submit ourselves as Christians to the civil authorities, to kings and to governors. And uh, we had that discussion of how that is a challenge, especially when you have ungodly leaders who are in place. And the reality is, is in the majority of the world throughout history, the leaders have been ungodly. And so the vast majority of Christians throughout history have found themselves in the situation where they are under the authority of the civil leaders uh, who are acting out their ungodliness. And remember, when Peter wrote this, this was during the time of Emperor Nero. And so he certainly was not under the authority of anyone who was friendly to Christianity. Uh, And then we saw, as we continued in verses uh, 18 through 25, uh, that we are to be submissive to masters with all respect. And so this was in the the domestic area. These would have been domestic servants. uh, And so how their masters treated them, whether they were fair or unfair, reasonable or unreasonable, they were to be submissive uh, and uh, glorify God in that submission. And then the example of Christ was given, finishing up chapter 2 through verse 25, that Jesus was the ultimate submissive Uh, individual, that he submitted to the Father's plan of salvation, that he submitted himself to the human authorities, uh, even when he was betrayed, when he was mocked, when he was ridiculed, when he was crucified. Everything about his life demonstrated sanctification and submission. And so knowing how difficult it would be to submit yourself and maintain your sanctification in these various situations, Peter points to Christ and says, here is our ultimate example. Now as we begin chapter uh, 3 and we look at verses 1 through 7, Peter changes the the arena here. It's still on the home. Remember the last section that we studied with submission, it was the domestic servant uh, to his master or her master. Uh, Here now we go back to the home, but it's a different context. Now we see the context of marriage, the context of the relationship between uh, first in verses 1 through 6, a wife with a husband who is called disobedient to the word. And so we'll talk about what that means in just a bit. And then rounding this out in verse 7, there is the exhortation to the husbands uh, on how they are to live with their wives, how they are to treat their wives as they are living sanctified lives and submitting to God's will for the plan of marriage and the authority in the home. Uh, And so this morning as we look at the first portion, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 which will focus on sanctified submission, which is pure and reverent. Okay, so pure and reverent to sanctified submission. And then uh, the second point we'll look at this morning is sanctified submission, which is physical and spiritual. That's verses 3 and 4. Let me read verses 1 through 7. And as I said, we're only going to cover up through verse 4 today. Next week, we'll cover 5, 6, and 7. 
It says, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of grace, or a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And so again, over the next two weeks, we're going to look at what God says concerning the relationship in the home. First thing addressed is the wives who are to be submissive to God by being submissive to their husbands, even disobedient husbands. And so this, again, addresses a very difficult, a very sensitive issue, uh, as it would have been with uh, those domestic servants who found themselves under the authority, some of them under the authority of gentle, good masters, and some under the authority of unreasonable masters. And so we'll see the same thing here with these Christian wives uh, who at times may have to deal with husbands who are disobedient to the word. So let's go to verses 1 and 2 as we look at this sanctified submission which is pure and reverent. So as Peter continues his series of exhortations on sanctification and being submissive, he's going back into the realm of the home. And uh, his first exhortation here is addressed to wives. Uh, and as we look at this, it seems like a little bit lopsided. There's six verses that address the wives and one verse that addresses the husband. But I think, and I'll explain this next week, when you look at verse 7, it seems like uh, Peter's exhortation here to the husbands is just as strong to them. Uh, there isn't the example that we see here in verses 5 and 6, uh, but you do see here that uh, what Peter makes very clear to the husbands is that, yes, you've been given authority in the home, but your wife is not just your wife. Your wife is a dear sister in Christ. And so you need to understand that. So we'll talk about the, the, the weight, the gravity of that statement, which really should keep husbands in check. Uh, and so we'll talk about that. So I know many times coming to this passage, uh, some people kind of look and think, wait, why are there six verses for women and, and just uh, one for the men? I, I think Peter really kind of unloads on the men in one verse, and we'll look at that next week. But as he continues here with the, uh, this, this thought of sanctification and submission, uh, he's speaking to Christian wives. There's no doubt about that. He's writing to his brethren who are scattered abroad. And so he's talking to women who are saved. He's talking to women who, who have placed their faith in Christ. They have left their pagan religions and they have embraced the, the understanding that there is one true God. There is one God. There is one Savior. Uh, and they are receiving the true word of God. And so Peter is giving them these exhortations knowing that there is tension in the home. And so as he brings these exhortations to them, he begins out by saying, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Okay, so in the same way, it has to refer back to everything that we summarized this morning from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 2, verse 25. 
And so in the same way as we are to keep our behavior excellent before the Gentiles, uh, in the same way that we are to be submissive to the civil authorities, in the same way that servants are to be submissive to their masters, whether they are reasonable or unreasonable, in the same way that Christ was submissive to the plan of salvation, even to the point of death, death on a cross. So wives, in the same way as all of these examples that I've just laid out before you, that I've just explained in the previous verses, in the same way, with the same mentality, with the same goal, the same attitude, you must be submissive to your own husbands. Uh, and so here, uh, you know, he is saying to them as he goes back in the same way that uh, there are going to be times when your husbands are unreasonable. There are going to be times when you feel or are attacked by your husbands whether it's emotional or verbal, and certainly some of them maybe even in a physical way. And so Peter understands that. But he says the same mentality, the same goal, the same exhortation, uh, the same calling by God, you have the same calling to be sanctified and submissive in the home as you do outside of the home. And this applies to all Christians, men and women alike, wives and husbands alike. But the first is the addressing the wives. And so uh, the same word for submission uh, is the same one, I mean, the same one here in verse 1 is the same one used in chapter 2, verse 13, and chapter 2, verse 18. And so there's no mistaking that Peter is talking about the same thing, the same concept. Uh, you were called to be submissive citizens in 2.13 and submissive servants in 2.18 and submissive wives in chapter 3, verse 1. So Peter is keeping his continuity here. Uh, and, and so when you look at this, there's no doubt. Peter's talking about the same thing. You must be submissive. Now, now, Peter's call to Christian wives to be submissive to their husbands, we, we want to make sure that we don't misunderstand this. Uh, there have been many people, and some who I know personally, who have taken this verse completely out of context and tried to apply this submission to every Christian woman, to every Christian man. And uh, in fact, I remember one time, uh, years and years ago, it wasn't in this congregation or even pre-merger, but that there was a gentleman in the congregation who was telling the ladies of the church they needed to submit to him because of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. And we had to put that brother in line and say, no, 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 this is not talking about other men's wives being submissive to every single man in the church. You've got that wrong. Okay? There is the authority that God has established, uh, the, the male headship, and you see that from the garden, but this does not mean that so-and-so's wife has to be submissive to you. Uh, meaning that she has to, to basically follow his instructions at church or stay quiet when he says quiet. I'm like, brother, you are completely off base here. <laughs> this is not what it says. Now, there are those who will look at this and say, no, it means women have to be submissive to men. Well, that's not what Peter's saying. Peter says you must submit to your own husband. So this is very personal. This is very intimate. This is very specific. The wife must be submissive to her husband. It does not go outside of the home. It doesn't apply to any other man. This is talking about the context of a husband and a wife only. And so I just, I don't think anyone here uh, would think that way. And I know that our leaders certainly don't think that way, but maybe you've heard that. And if you have it and someone brings it up, this is not what this context is teaching. This is not saying all women, Christian women have to be submissive to all Christian men without question. This is the context of a marriage, a wife and a husband. Uh, and so this idea of submission, it was, it was not something that is just, is just biblical. Right? We understand there is the biblical understanding, the biblical exhortation to be submissive. 
for both men and women, for Christians in general, uh, whether it's to the government, whether it's to uh, those who are in authority, whether it's the domestic realm, or today we could say in, in the workplace, uh, maybe in schools with students and teachers or college students and professors, uh, certainly in the home. But this was also something that was very common, and it was part of the culture in, in both Greek philosophy and, and just in the Roman Empire. Uh, and, and so if, if you take a look at your notes here, we see that in both Greek philosophy and in the Roman custom, uh, order in the household was required and viewed as the foundation of order in the state. This is from Clowney's commentary. Additionally, women in the Roman Empire were expected to adhere to the religion of their husbands. Christianity was seen as subversive in that it invited a woman to commit themselves, or women to commit themselves uh, to Jesus, whether or not their husbands approved. And so outside of the church, uh, even in a pagan culture at this time, there was the understanding women needed to be submissive. And, and so this would not have been something new to the women uh, who came out of paganism. They would have been used to being submissive. But now that they are followers of Jesus Christ, there's kind of a wrench in that system. Because from this pagan view, uh, their being submissive to their husbands also meant in the religious realm that they were to follow his faith. They were to follow you know, whichever God he chose to serve or gods that he chose to serve. So being a believer in Jesus Christ could bring immediate tension in the home. But Peter had to remind the wives, you still must be submissive even if your faith is not their faith or even if your faith is their faith and they're not walking in sanctification. They're being disobedient to God's word. Uh, and so as you, you look at... Um, this understanding, being submissive to their own husbands, uh, in one way, it did follow the customs of the day. Uh, the Bible was not asking women to, to throw off the chains of submission. It was simply saying, you know that you must be submissive, first to God, we'll talk about that in a bit, and then to your husbands. But as long as submission to your husbands does not cause you or, or demand that you disobey God, you are to be submissive. Uh, and so again, this is something that we've seen throughout Scripture. Take a look at Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 29, as a reminder here, that there are absolutely times when Christians must say, I will not submit. Uh, that is with civil authorities, that could be in the workplace, and that certainly applies to the home. If there is ever a time when a Christian husband or a Christian wife is asking or is asked by the, the uh, disobedient or the unbelieving spouse to do something unbiblical, ungodly, then at that point they must resist. Okay? Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we see here that uh, Peter and, and uh, the apostles were, were um, taken before leaders. They were given uh, these mandates to stop preaching the gospel. And uh, when you look at verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And then he goes straight into a gospel presentation, straight into demonstrating that Christ is the Savior and that these men heartily agreed with putting him to death. And so Peter was like, okay, we respect your authority, but God's the higher authority, and we must obey God rather than men, and went right back into their evangelistic ministry, uh, understanding that there could very well be consequences. 
And they didn't shy away from that. So understand this. Whenever we are being called to submit, whoever the authority is, in the home or outside of the home, if they are asking us to do something ungodly, we must resist. We, we don't want to sin. We're not out there to cause you know, riots and chaos and, and anarchy. And uh, we're not to be um, uh, you know, bringing uh, shame to the name of Christ. But the mentality is we must obey God rather than men. And whatever happens, happens. You know, you, you want to verbally assault me, you want to throw me in jail, you want to take away, you know, tax breaks, you want to say, you know, rude comments or blacklist us, and whatever it is, that's fine. But we must obey God rather than men. So understand that as we come back to First Peter, wives are to be submissive, and the call to be submissive did fall in line with the culture of the day, with Greek philosophy and, and the Roman culture and the empire. But it was never uh, an exhortation that says you submit in every situation. The understanding is always you're doing this for the glory of God. You're doing this as a testimony, as we'll see in just a little bit. So that means that you cannot participate in these sinful activities, these sinful deeds. So when they call you to be submissive in those areas, your answer must be no. You must resist that. So... So Peter addresses disobedient husbands. Look at, back at verse 1. So in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And so as Peter is talking about these disobedient husbands, I think there are two main ideas of what this means when you're talking about a disobedient husband or a husband who's disobedient to the word. Uh, one thought is that what Peter's talking about here is in the situation that some of you ladies, assuming that we're addressing his audience, uh, might be married to an unbeliever. In the case where you are, here's what's going on. Uh, and, and they would point to the terms there or the words, if any of them are disobedient. Meaning not all of them, I'm not just addressing wives who have unbelieving husbands, but if there are any wives in the church who have unbelieving husbands, then here we see this is the situation for you. Others would say, no, this is Peter addressing wives who have unsaved husbands. Now, we can't be dogmatic with either view, um, but what we can say is that uh, in either view, if you have a, a husband who is professing to be saved and he's disobedient to the word of God, then that means he's really not walking in sanctification. He's not growing in his sanctification. Uh, if disobedience to the word means that they're rejecting the gospel, then they are unsaved. And so in either situation, what we see here, the point is, is that the wife's, uh, her, her lifestyle, the way that she responds to her husband, the way that she, she carries herself in the home, the way that she acts, her attitude and her actions, those become walking, living, visible testimonies of the transforming power of the gospel. And so that's what Peter is saying here. That, that if any of these husbands are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, I, I tend to lean towards the, the understanding that these are unbelieving husbands that Peter has in mind, that he's addressing wives with unbelieving husbands. Because when you go back and you look at the previous verses, and Peter, he, he directs them to these previous verses when he says, in the same way. Remember, in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, uh, we are, are being given this exhortation to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now, some of Peter's 
brethren, some of the readers, were Gentile and that they were not Jewish. But remember, when you see Gentile appearing in Scripture, it often was a term that was used to describe unbelievers. And so here, if you keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers, so that in the thing you know, where they slander you as evildoers, they, because of your good deeds, may observe them and glorify God in the day of visitation. And so there, that's clearly an evangelistic opportunity. When you look at verses 13 through 17, when you see here to submit yourselves to the Lord's sake for every human institution, king or one in authority, governors, there weren't Christian governors in place or Christian kings in place at this time. These were pagan kings. So there in verses 11 and 12, you have the unbelieving Gentiles. Here in verses 13 through 17, you have unbelieving civil leaders. Now in verses 18 through 20, it doesn't specifically say that these are believers or unbelievers, but uh, the term of these, these um, masters being unreasonable, uh, it meant that they were, were very oppressive and, and very um, abusive to their servants, which you wouldn't expect from a believer. Uh, and so 18 through 20 are not as clear, but I think verses 11 through 17 make it pretty clear Peter has in mind unbelievers. So if he's keeping that same thought when we come to chapter 3, verse 1, then I think there's good contextual evidence that shows that these men were unbelieving men. So then in this situation, you have wives who came to faith in Christ uh, before their husbands did. And they came out of a pagan background, out of a pagan culture, out of pagan religion. They are now doing all they can to follow Christ, but they're living with an unbelieving husband. And any spouse who's been in that situation knows how difficult that is. I have some very dear friends who are in that situation, and we've had many conversations at how challenging, how frustrating, how difficult it is to live with an unbelieving spouse. Uh, and so Peter here, I believe, is talking to Christian wives who are married to unbelieving men. Uh, but if he's talking about sanctified more or unsanctified or, or not as sanctified as they should be, as opposed to completely unbelieving, the principle still applies. That the actions of the sanctified and submissive wife speak volumes, even without using words. And so your actions are very, very important. Uh, the idea here of, of winning them, that they may be won over without a word, uh, is to gain, to win, to, to gain something. Uh, and in the context here, uh, most commentators see this as salvation or an increased sanctification. Uh, it is interesting when you look at James chapter 4. Take a look there, James chapter 4, uh, verse 13. Uh, the same word is used. It's not talking about sanctification or salvation, but here it's talking about the individual who desires gain and wants to make a profit. So there's a clear benefit to him. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. The same term. Say we are going to win gain. We're going to win this for us. So the idea here is we're going to bring something that's going to benefit us. We're going to, to um, possess this possess this um, wealth. And so when you bring that back to the context of, of 1 Peter 3, the idea is that you will gain your husbands. You will win them over, you will gain them, and gain them to what? Gain them to that fellowship in Christ. Gain them perhaps as a brother in Christ as opposed to just 
an unbelieving husband. He's now a husband and a joint heir. And so the idea there is uh, there is much at stake that in your actions and how you respond to this disobedient man, God can use your actions. He can use your attitude. He can use your sanctified life to break that hard shell of your husband and bring him to his senses and win him over. And so Peter is laying out the importance of being sanctified and submissive where he is, but he isn't saying that their salvation's at stake. Okay. Now, I, I say that because we want to understand that that salvation is never in the hands of a human being. You don't and I don't have the authority or the power or the influence to bring someone to salvation. The Lord can use us to bring people to salvation as we share the gospel of Christ, as we are living the gospel of Christ. He uses humans as his conduits in this world, as his voice, as his messengers, his heralds, to bring the gospel to people so they will be saved. But you do not have the authority to save someone, neither do I. And I say that because sometimes people can share the gospel with someone, and let's say that person receives Christ, well then they can have an inflated, a wrong view of their role in salvation. But you also on the, and, and, and for many they see that as a positive. I, I, I saved so many people this year. I you know, brought people to Christ this year. Well, okay, understand God used you, but it was the Holy Spirit who did the work in their hearts and in their minds. And praise God that you were used in that situation. But I have heard many people um, where they are either talking to people individually or they're preaching it or in books where they will say that, that your your, your actions or your, your lack of preaching the gospel could be the reason why someone's going to hell. They're in hell today because you didn't take the time to preach the gospel, because you didn't evangelize, because you didn't do this. And that puts unnecessary guilt upon humans. We should feel guilty if we don't want to go out and share the gospel, but no one goes to hell because we did or did not share the gospel. We might lose out on the temporal blessing of being involved in bringing someone to salvation through the proclamation of the gospel. But we do not have the power or the authority to save people or keep them from salvation. So we need to make sure we understand that. Peter is not saying, ladies, you can save your husbands. What he's saying is, is that your submissive and sanctified attitude and actions, God could use that in his plan to bring this man to salvation. And, and vice versa, the same thing for husbands who have unbelieving wives. The principle is exactly the same. And so when we talk about what Peter says here, that they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives, it, it, it really goes back to emphasize the importance of chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the excellent behavior. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And, and in this case, I, I think it's safe for us to say that, that perhaps these unbelieving, these disobedient men are Gentiles in the home. There are the Gentiles in the world all around us, meaning unbelievers around us, but some wives lived with the Gentile, the spiritual Gentile in the home, where he was an unbeliever. He was not part of the family of God. He was disobedient to the word in the sense that he rejected the gospel of Christ. And so what Peter is saying here is that without you proclaiming the gospel, God could still use your sanctified and submissive behavior that this man is saved. Now that does not mean 
that you don't have to proclaim the gospel. We've already seen in 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2 that the proclamation of the gospel was absolutely necessary. That the word of God, go back to chapter 1, and when you look at verse 10, it says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So Peter makes it very clear. The prophets of old, they, they loved the gospel. They were anticipating the coming of the Messiah, and all of their ministry wasn't for them. It actually was building up for you. And you received that verbal proclamation of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit was, was essential in that. You're saved because you heard the gospel. So when you go back to verse 1 of chapter 3, Peter is not saying your husband can be saved without ever hearing the gospel message. What he's saying is wives, even if you don't have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel verbally to him, your attitude and your actions can be a living testimony of the transforming power of the gospel, and God can use that. Now again, understand in their culture, when we're talking about this, this um, without a word concept, Again, these wives coming from uh, Greek or, or Roman cultures, even Jewish culture back then, uh, oftentimes women were to be seen, not heard. They weren't seen as the same level as men. And so many times you had women who, who had no place where they could just speak up. That wasn't their place. Uh, in fact, we, we read in, in some commentaries and in some histories that in, in the custom of the day, uh, men would marry women who were much younger. So the custom, the ideal was a man of 30 would marry a woman of 15. That was the Roman ideal. So you'd marry someone much younger and less educated. So you married someone who was young and you married someone who didn't have your education level. And so it wasn't uncommon for women in the house to not really speak at all to their husbands unless they were specifically asked to say something. So here you have these women who were there, wives, but they were silent. They wouldn't even think to speak up, and if they did, it could be trouble for them because the culture didn't accept that. Now, praise God that we don't live in that kind of society. Right? I mean, some, some countries still do. Some cultures, that's still the same way. And in Peter's day, that was certainly it. So, so, so Peter is not saying here, you don't need to proclaim the gospel, but he understands that many of his sisters in Christ were probably in situations where, where culturally and socially it was not acceptable for them to speak up in the home. So they wouldn't have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. So then what was the second best for them? To demonstrate the gospel in their attitude, to demonstrate the gospel in their actions. And so even without their words, perhaps someone else sharing the gospel with their husband and then when the wives actions kind of water the seeds that were planted then God would put two and two together and perhaps the man would be won over by understanding what he heard from someone else and then sees the transformed life of his own wife and then it clicks that's what we're talking about and that fits the same thing that we read in chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 you keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles and, and in the thing that they slandered you that they'll remember in the day of the visitation and they'll glorify God. So when God 
visits them with salvation, they'll remember the people they slandered, the people they rebuked, and go, they were right. They were living their faith. And now that God has opened my eyes, I see I was the one who was wrong, not them. So that's perhaps the same thing happening here in the home. That the husbands would be won over without a word from their wives, but not without the gospel proclamation. As the wives would not have the opportunity to proclaim it, their actions would. And so Peter says that, that, that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And so here the idea of this chaste and respectful behavior is the way the woman would carry herself. And, and, and when we think chaste, it's, it's usually like a, a, the concept is, is more the focus of sexual purity. And that certainly is part of it. But it was more than that. It goes beyond that. It talks about uh, this moral purity, the, this whole realm of morality. And, and if you remember, these are ladies who are coming out of a pagan culture. So moral, immorality was rampant. I mean, in pagan cultures, in both Roman and Greek cultures, uh, I mean, it was no problem. It was, it was accepted and embraced to be perverse in many, many ways. And so God is, is telling them through Peter, you need to be pure. You need to have this moral purity in the totality of your life, in your character and in your conduct. You need to be pure. And, and not only pure, uh, but you have to be um, respectful. Right? So it's, it's pure in every way, and it is respectful not only to her husband, but primarily to God. If she is if fearing God and respecting God, then she will be in a better position to fear and respect her husband. Uh, again, as long as he's not asking her to do something sinful. When we look at, at, at uh, respect here, of the chaste and respectful behavior, uh, respect is the same term that we see in chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 17. Go ahead and, and take a look there. Chapter 1, uh, verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during, your time, or during the time of your stay on earth. Okay? So he's saying if you call God father, then you must revere that father. You must respect that father. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Again, if you are going to honor the human king, you must fear the sovereign king. And so when you bring this back to chapter 3, verse 2, um, the wives must be respectful. First and foremost, they must fear God. And then they can be respectful to their husbands. So Peter says, as, as your husbands see you in your moral purity, as they see you're living a life of reverence, then that's going to be a powerful tool to perhaps bring them to Christ, to see their lives transformed. Now that's not something that is, is um, unfamiliar to the Christian life. Uh, we are, are told many times in Scripture that there's a certain way we are expected to live. We're supposed to walk in a certain manner. We are to be pure. We're to be separate. We are to live lives of reverence. Take a look. Here's a, a few of them listed for you. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 22. James 1, 22, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Okay? So there's the idea of hearing and doing. Your faith needs to be active. It needs to be seen, not just spoken or not just embraced. It has to be lived out. 
Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. First okay, John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, meaning only, but in deed and in truth. So don't just say you love, but love. Don't just say you love God and love your brethren, but you need to demonstrate that in your life. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, if you ever do a study of Ephesians, you can break down the entire book in two sections. Se- uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are who you are in Christ. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are how you live in Christ. Now, there's more to break down in the outline, but those are the two basic uh, divisions in the book. 1 through 3 is who you are in Christ. 4 through 6 is how you live in Christ. And look at how chapter 4 begins. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so when you look at this, Paul says, this is who you are, you know that now, we've established that, or better this way, we've established that in chapters 1 through 3, now live it. You know who you are, so then act like it. Act like who you were created to be. And that's what these wives are being told to do. You need to be chaste and be respectful. Look at Colossians 1.10. Colossians 1.10, uh, beginning in verse 9, actually. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so here Paul's prayer is, is that we what? We walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then again, you see a reference like that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 12. Let's just take a look at that. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12. Uh, starting in verse 10, actually. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so whether it's Peter or whether it's Paul, you see here in the Old Testament the consistency. You need to walk in a manner of the calling of the gospel. And so that comes back to the wives here. You need to be pure. You need to be reverent. And this is something that has been stated already beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, at least for this section. You must be pure. You must keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, and you need to fear God. So, um, Take a look now at verses 3 and 4 as... Um, we look at, at the rest of our study. This is a shorter section. That first one was rather lengthy for this morning. But uh, here, verses 3 and 4, we see sanctified submission, which is physical and spiritual. Now, any time that uh, a pastor preaches about women, he's always thinking, oh, man, someone's feathers are going to get ruffled. When you talk about the, women, the, the, the women's, uh, um, their appearance, uh, and what it, God sees as, as honoring and not honoring, you're like, oh man, someone's not going to like this. So let me just say this as, as gently and as generally as I can. Uh, the physical is important, but it's not nearly as important as the spiritual. Peter is not saying, God is not saying, women, don't take care of your physical appearance. That's not what he's saying. 
Um, I think most husbands would say yes and amen. Go for it. But that's not the most important thing. And men should not make it the most important thing, and women should not make it the most important thing. Okay? And that's apparently what was happening here, and it certainly was the culture of the day, that the external was all important. Okay? And so when we look at verses 3 and 4, your adornment must not merely or not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So as Peter is, is continuing this exhortation to his Christian uh, sisters, he's shifting focus from the general conduct of being pure and reverent to something very specific. The contrast between your physical and your spiritual. Okay? And so as you look at this, he's looking at both a, a negative, not merely the external, and then the positive, the hidden person of the heart. And so one is seen as negative in the sense that there is an overemphasis of it. And the other is seen as the positive, as this is what really matters. This is what really counts, who you are inside. So although Peter speaks of the, the external adornment and the negative, it doesn't mean that the outer appearance of the woman is not important. It merely means that the external appearance is less important than the internal beauty. Now, when you talk about the, the Gentiles or talking about the Greek and the Roman world, they knew how to, to really glam it up or, or I, don't, I don't even know if this is still a, a contemporary term, but you know, they, they like to add that bling to everything. Whether it was their dresses, their jewelry, their hair, whatever it was, it was really showing off. And so we certainly know that that happens today. Whatever you want to call it, uh, both men and women like to do that. They put on a good show and everything is just about physical appearance. Uh, and so that certainly was the idea of the day. And here Peter looks at three different ways. He looks at the braided hair, the gold jewelry, and then the fine garments. Um, the braiding of the hair is not simply just braiding up your hair. Like if you ever uh, pay attention to my daughter's hair, you notice that she always does her hair up in some different way. And she, I don't know how she does it, uh, with that really long hair and a mirror or no mirror, but she comes out with these braids and this thing. I'm like, wow, how did you do that? That's like a work of art. That looks great. And, and for her, we rarely see her with her hair just down. I mean, it's, it's up and it's all nice. And that's not what Peter's talking about. He's not saying don't, you know, don't, you know, put your hair up in braids or ponytails or whatever it might be. He's not saying don't put your hair up for convenience or whatever. He's just, he's just saying you're not going to go extravagant on that. That's the idea here. And for the, the, the Romans and the Greeks, it was this very elaborate and extravagant uh, uh, gathering of the hair into knots as well as using golden combs and golden nets in the hair. So it was really kind of this glamorized look. I mean, just you know, it's almost like they were going to some award show in Hollywood or something, and there's just, they bring out all the jewelry, and, and it's interesting, when you look at them going to these shows, a lot of them don't own their pieces of jewelry, they're given to them on loan by some jewelry house so they can get some promotion, but I mean, but they're out there with, you know, 10 carat emeralds and, you know, this big old ruby in the hair or whatever, it's like, wow, that's crazy. Well, that's how the Romans and the Greeks like to do it, and, and so they would do that, and so Peter's saying, don't do that, that's not what's important. It, it's not just adding all of these, these beautiful things to your hair and interweaving everything. Uh, uh, Ebert in his commentary says that this braiding of the hair was an elaborate process that involves the service of a professional hairdresser. 
Now remember, in their day and age, it wasn't like you just went down to your salon and your hairdresser's doing your hair. I mean, this is something that the average person could never afford. And so here you see some were spending a great amount of wealth on their physical appearance. Uh, very elaborate, very over the top. Uh, and so he says, you're, it's not about the braiding of the hair and it's not about the, the jewelry. This was, would be complementary to the braiding. You've got gold in the hair and then you have gold jewelry that you're wearing, whether it's a necklace or a bracelet or a ring, whatever it might be. Um, you know, it, it's not about just wearing all of these precious metals and, and, and flaunting that. Okay? This is a, and it's also not about putting on dresses. Okay? This doesn't mean that, that women have to wear pants, or back then they didn't have pants the way that we see them today. They would kind of cinch up robes and do that. What he's talking about here is, is the expensive garments. Okay, so it's, you're, not, you're not buying expensive garments. You're not wearing all this, this gold jewelry and the precious metals. You're not putting up your hair to, to impress and in, in extravagance. That's not what is important. Okay? It says here that the clothing worn extravagantly was not the key in attempts to win their husbands to Christ. That's Peter's point. It, to, to be sanctified and to be submissive, it's not about your physical appearance. That's not going to win your husband to Christ. That's not going to, to demonstrate to him that you were sanctified or submissive, that you are a lover of God. If anything, that would demonstrate to your husband that you are very materialistic and a lover of self. Uh, and, and perhaps a lover of the opinions of your peers. And that certainly can be true today. Uh, we never, as far as I know, uh, pre-merger and then with our congregation now, I've never known any of our leaders to go around and be the fashion police. We haven't and we won't. That's not our role, with men or women. What you want to wear, how much you want to wear, and what you wear to church as opposed to what you wear outside of you know, meeting together, that's completely up to you. But what we do say, as the Word of God says, is that don't overemphasize your external at the expense of the internal. The internal is more important than the external. There's nothing wrong with having nice clothes. There's nothing wrong with wearing jewelry. There's nothing wrong with getting your hair done as long as that does not become your primary focus and purpose and an idea of who you are and how you impress, whether it's your husband or others, or your wife or others. That's Peter's point. It's like, ladies, don't go overboard on that because that's not the true beauty. The true adornment is the hidden person of the heart. It says, in that hidden person of the heart, those qualities are imperishable, a quiet and a gentle spirit. And so as Peter says, look inward rather than looking you know, uh, outside, um, her true personality would be revealed through words and actions which reflect her inner attitude, her inner character. And so who she is inside came out externally, and that would be shown to the husband. And so Peter says, that's the focus. You want that. It's interesting. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6, and uh, Peter will uh, have something to say about this as well, but Isaiah 40, verse 6 says, a voice says, call out, and then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. And so the understanding here is the physical doesn't last. The physical body, the physical beauty, it fades. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. 
That's the brevity of life. Okay? So again, there's nothing wrong with taking care of our bodies, but understand they don't live forever and they're not most important. The most important quality is internal. And Peter uh, touches on that in chapter 1, verse 4, and chapter 1, verse 24. Take a look here as we're talking about the, the imperishable beauty. Chapter 1, verse 4, uh, that we have been born again to a living hope. What? To, con- to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That means don't amass everything down here on earth. Don't, don't try to hold on to all the eternal or the, the earthly beauty and wealth because God has in store for you the eternal, imperishable riches. That's more important. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 24. And uh, here we see Peter where he is, is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. Again, flesh is like grass and the glory of the flower of the grass. Grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So here we see imperishable quality, we see enduring quality, and Peter applies that very same concept to the internal beauty of the Christian wife. It's not your hair and your jewelry and your clothes that make you. It's who you are inside. It's the gentle and the quiet spirit. That is what God finds precious. And that's, that's where we'll finish this morning. It says that gentle and quiet spirit back in chapter 3, verse 4, which is precious in the sight of God. Okay? And so the things that the world might look at externally, they might say those things are precious. The hair, the gold, the clothes, whatever it might be today, the shoes, the purses, the car, the house, whatever it is. Right? That makes a person. Look at how wealthy they are. Look at how, how incredible they are. No, no, no. That, those, are all, those are all toys and, and, and things that perish. That's, that's not who a person really is. It's inside. And, and it's inside that, that God looks at and says, that's precious to me. Who you are, not what you wear, is what is precious to me. As we close here, take a look at chapter 2, verse 4. The most precious person who ever existed, Jesus Christ, was rejected by humans. And yet God saw him as precious. And coming to him, coming to Christ, is to a living stone which has been rejected by man, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Remember when we talked about the choice stone. The stone or the rock was kind of just a boulder. An uncut, raw, unrefined stone. The choice stone was one that was taken and it was cut skillfully so that it was a beautiful kind of a gemstone, if you will. And so just as a reminder, Jesus was that choice and precious rock in the sight of God, even though he was rejected by the world. And so as we wrap this up for this morning, ladies, what Peter is saying is that what the world sees as precious and beautiful, God sees that in a sense as raw and unrefined and unimpressive. It's not that you can't focus on that. You do, but don't focus heavily on it. Don't make that the main thing. Look for the beauty inside, and God's going to see that and say, that is choice, that is precious, and that will manifest itself in your life, and that could be a living testimony to your husband. Let's close in prayer, and next week we'll continue uh, in verses uh, 5, 6, and 7, and we'll find an Old Testament example of this and then see what Peter has to say to husbands. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this morning. We pray that uh, what we have studied this morning has been uh, faithful uh, to the the, uh, true understanding of it and that we take these truths and apply them to our lives, not just the ladies but the men as well because the principle is the same. 
And so we pray this morning that we are more focused on who we are and not how we look uh, and know that who we are is an indication of the, the power of the gospel as it continues to change us from day to day as we grow in our sanctification through the study of your word and the application of it and your Holy Spirit working in us. We thank and we praise you in Christ's name.